Please open your Bibles with me today to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 20 today, verses 13 through 20. And I've entitled today's message, The Most Important Question of All Time. The Most Important Question of All Time. Jesus is going to bring his disciples away from the crowds, away from the busyness of their ministry schedule going to go outside kind of where many of the Jewish population was residing. And he's going to do some, spend some time with his disciples and really examining their heart. What is it that you men believe? What is it that you now uh, think of me? Now that you've traveled with me these now, by now nearly two and a half years, and, and Jesus is going to really begin to prepare them for the season that's coming. You know, Our Christian life does involve sometimes uh, just self-examining questions, times where we have to allow the Lord to kind of probe our heart and see where we are, uh, crossroads in, in various times of our life. And, you know, we sing the song, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. And sometimes we just have to re reestablish that commitment. Joshua, you know this famous passage, Joshua 24, verse 15, he says, Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's almost as if Jesus is getting his disciples ready for the next phase of his ministry, which of course is going to include the cross. And Jesus now wants to take the time with them and really solidify their faith. And I do believe that all of us will have important times in our Christian journey as well where the Lord will call us to solidify our faith, to evaluate what we believe and to to consider the direction of our life and to even allow him to ask the deep probing questions within our heart. Let's take a look now at our text. Pick it up with me in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and not and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. I want to go through this text kind of piece by piece and consider some things with you. The first thing I think is important is to recognize the setting in which Jesus is asking this question. It says that he went into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now there was a Caesarea in Israel also located on the Mediterranean coast. This is a different Caesarea. This is noted as Caesarea Philippi. It's located north of the Sea of Galilee. 
It's at the base of Mount Hermon. Very beautiful area. It's where, it's where the spring waters, which supply the Jordan River, river come up. And it's, it's a stop. Usually when we tour Israel, uh, and we will be stopping there on this trip next year, uh, and it's it, because it has some interesting artifacts there, some interesting carvings in the rocks. The city itself was named by uh, Herod Philip, Philip uh, the Tetrarch, son of Herod. Uh, and he wanted to name this region both honoring Caesar and himself, thus the name Caesarea Philippi. And it was a place of pagan worship. The Greek gods were worshipped here. There were many temples, idols uh, carved within the large rock cliffs of the area. And um, in fact, there's an area, and this is one of the areas we visit when we go to Israel. There's this area called the Rock of the Gods. And you get to see the actual carvings and shrines uh, of many, many false gods. The, the god Pan was worshipped there. Zeus was worshipped there. Many pagan sacrifices were made there. And in fact, there's a, a large cave kind of within the side of this large rock area. And uh, in Jesus' day, it's a place where the water used to flow out of this cave, these spring waters that a tributary to the Jordan River would flow out of this cave. Now, an earthquake has changed the, the course of the spring water. It no longer flows out of this cave. But at that time it did, and it, it actually this cave was named the gate, the gate of Hades because in the pagan worship it was thought that any place where the water flowed out was something of a gateway to the underworld. And so this is the setting. It has something of a significance that Jesus goes here and begins to ask these probing questions about who do you say that I am. In the place of all this false worship and false gods, false idols, what do you say about the true and living God? And so it's something of a picture and we do see that Jesus uses it even in speaking to his disciples. Let's now take a look at this first question that Jesus asks and the answer that is given. Verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So, uh, Jesus is asking this question, what, what, what are people out in the world saying about me? Now, now, this is not Jesus being insecure. Jesus was not you know, worried about public opinion. This is not like our politicians today taking polls every few weeks, you know, the, the, the pre-election polls. Jesus wasn't saying, well, what are people saying about me? Do people like me? Am I being, getting favorable reviews out in the community? Actually, I think this is Jesus setting his disciples up for the more penetrating question that he's getting ready to ask, and that's, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? But they respond to his question. They say, John the Baptist. Some are thinking that you're John the Baptist. Well, we remember in earlier studies that Herod, who had put to death John the Baptist, thought that Jesus was actually the resurrected John the Baptist. So perhaps this rumor was spreading through the land. Some say Elijah. Elijah was seen as one of the greatest prophets. And it, it was believed that Elijah would one day resurrect and prepare the way for the Messiah. Some say Jeremiah. This was also a tradition within the Jewish community that Jeremiah would someday resurrect and then he would bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the temple. Uh, 
The tradition has that Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant before Babylon conquered the temple in Judah. And, and that, so the thought is, well, he'll resurrect, he'll locate the Ark of the Covenant, bring it to the temple, preparing everything for the Messiah. And then they said, some say you are just one of the prophets, uh, someone who has come to prepare, again, the way for the Messiah. These are all very complimentary terms, by the way. These are very high views of Jesus. This is nothing negative. To be compared with these great men of the Bible would have been a, a, a high compliment that many were saying. But of course, they were not true. They were not accurate. And even though it might, be seemed, it might seem as a high view of Jesus, it was really a low view of Jesus compared to who he really was. And you know, I think we see the same kind of thing today, don't we? We have people talking very complimentary of Jesus. Oh, he was a great teacher. Oh, he was a great leader uh, uh, in his day. Oh, what a wonderful historical figure he was. Oh, he was such a humble, he, he gave such good lesson on humility and just caring for, one, for, for our, your neighbor. And some of his teachings are so profound. And there's a lot of complimentary uh, thoughts about Jesus, and yet they fall short to declare the real truth about Jesus. And in so doing, they really miss the truth about Jesus altogether. Some years back, my wife and I, Traveling with family, we had a chance to go and do some sightseeing in, in, in Egypt. And we saw some of these Egyptian uh, uh, ruins, you know, pretty, pretty uh, impressive uh, archaeological digs that, that have been uncovered there in Egypt. And our tour guide that we had giving the tour with us for several days was a Muslim. And uh, very informative on the, on, on the uh, ruins, but, you know, also a friendly guy. And so during lunch and time, you know, you spend several days on the bus. You get to know this person a little bit. My wife and I, one day he came and sat at our table and just kind of struck up conversation at lunch. And I began to ask him, I said, now listen, what, what's your view? What's the Muslim view of Jesus? Oh, Jesus was a great prophet. Jesus was, a, was really a wonderful prophet, a, a man who spoke for God, a man who spoke in his time. Well, I said, was he as great a prophet as Muhammad? Well, no, not that great. But he was still a very, you know, had a high regard for Jesus. I said, well, do you believe that he was the son of God? No, God has no sons. God is not uh, begotten, nor does he begot anyone. So, no, he's not the son of God. Do you believe that he died on a cross and rose from the dead? No, he did not die on a cross. Actually, God just raptured him. God just took him up. There was, there was threats to crucify him, but God rescued him because he was such an important prophet. So even though this Muslim had a very high regard for Jesus, he missed the truth of Jesus altogether. He did not see the biblical Jesus that we read. You know, the cults that we are aware of today, there are many views of Jesus, the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons. These are... That religions that, that seem Christian, that talk with Christian language and terminology, but if you do the research on their belief system, they deny the divinity of Christ. They believe Jesus was a created being. Very important, very uh, significant, but nevertheless not God, just a man. And it's falls well short of the biblical view 
of Jesus. Some popular ideas today. Jesus is one of many ways to God. So some will even say that he is one of the means that one can come to God, but certainly not the only way. And again, these are complementary, high views of Jesus, but all of them miss the claims that Jesus made of himself, and they miss the biblical revelation of Christ. This brings us to the next question. Jesus then probes his disciples. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Okay, these are the the terms that are being thrown around about me in the world, but who do you say? Well, Simon Peter speaks up and answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was always ready to give an answer, wasn't he? Sometimes he was a little impulsive, sometimes a little outspoken, sometimes he would speak and then think, but in this case, he speaks and he gets it right on the money. He declares the truth concerning Jesus. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. You're not the forerunner to the Messiah. You're not the precursor to the Savior and the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the one prophesied throughout the ages. You are the one of whom the prophets spoke and declared. You are the Savior, the Messiah, the one sent to redeem our nation. But not only that, Peter said, you are also the Son of the living God. And this phrase clearly affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. You're not just the Son of Man. You're also Son of the living God. Peter declares Jesus to be both Messiah and God in the flesh. And this is the true definition of Jesus Christ. He is God Himself in the flesh. Let me reference just a few verses for you, and there are many others, but just listen to some of these. Jesus in John 8:58, in confronting the Pharisees, he said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Remember, that's the, that's the name that God gave to Moses. Moses said, when I go before Pharaoh and, and he asks who sent me, what name do I use? You tell him that I am sent you. And Jesus is now saying to the Pharisees, before Abraham, I am. I pre-existed Abraham. I am the God of Moses. I am the eternal true God. They wanted to stone him in this moment, but it was not his time and he escaped. But Jesus himself declared to be God. Jesus in John 10.30 says, I and my Father are one. Titus in 2 verse 13, Paul says this, that we are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our, listen, great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The early uh, church knew Jesus to be God and nothing less than God. Romans 9, 5, speaking of Christ, it says He came who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. 1 John 5, 20, His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. The writer of Hebrews quotes God the Father speaking about the Son, and he says, but to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's God the Father speaking of God the Son. Your throne is forever and ever. The Bible clearly teaches 
that Jesus is much more than just a man. He is God in the flesh come to save men. And so Peter gets it right. Peter nails the question. This is still the most important question. This is still the crossroad of eternity for everyone. We can't help but notice that Jesus makes it personal. Who do you say that I am? Not what do others say, not what does popular opinion say, not what's kind of, uh, you know, good in the culture right now. Who do you say that I am? And this is the question that confronts every heart that hears about Jesus, that hears the gospel of Christ. The question is posed today, who do you say I am? What say you about Jesus? Is he the Savior? Is he God? Is he the one true living God? Is he the way, the truth, and the life? Is he, in fact, the only way by which men can be saved and have their sins forgiven and their life restored in relationship to their Creator? How you answer this question changes everything. It will affect your life. It completely alters the trajectory of your life, the priorities of your life, the purpose and and meaning of your life. But not only this life, it affects eternity. This is the question that will determine. How you answer this question will determine where you will spend eternity. Those who reject Christ are, are spend eternity apart from God. Those who receive Christ spend an eternity with God. There is an eternity for all. The question is, where will you spend it? And the answer to this question is what affects that destiny. Listen to the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. He says of God that he desires all men to be saved. And come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Jesus Christ who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. God wants to save. The Apostle Paul says, Timothy, God's heart is to save all men. But there's only one way to salvation. It's through the one mediator that God has established, His Son, Jesus Christ. He is God. He is Savior. Who do you say that He is? Is the question of all time for all people. Peter answers it well, but Jesus says it's more than just a good answer that you've come up with, Peter. There's really something of a divine revelation that you're speaking. Look with me again, verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Bar meaning son. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. As I mentioned, by now the disciples have been with Jesus for two and a half years. They've seen the miracles. They've seen him calm the sea. They've seen him heal. They've seen him cast out the demons. They've heard his teaching. They have come to a a great appreciation for Jesus. But Jesus said that this, this declaration of truth is not something that you are able to come to just in your own thinking, Peter. 
not flesh and blood, but my Father who is in heaven. There is something of a divine revelation that confirms in our heart that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. And God confirms it in the heart by His Spirit. And I I think that it's more than just a head knowledge that Peter is expressing. It's more than just his natural understanding. There is something of a spiritual revelation that is coming and being expressed by Peter. Jesus would say this in John 6:44, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him." And so there is a divine interaction between us. We hear the message, we hear the truth, we 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 hear the testimony of Christ. But there is something of a spiritual reality that takes place within that reveals and confirms that it is true. Jesus said, you can only come to me as the Father has drawn you and confirmed in your heart the truth of this testimony. If you think about your own journey, your own coming to faith in Christ, you may be able to kind of retrace your steps and you can see that you know God was divinely navigating me to this crossroad, to this place where I heard the message. And when I heard it, something in my heart just knew that it was true, that God loved me, that I, that, that I was created in His image, that I was a sinner separated from Him, and that He sent His Son to die on the cross and rise from the dead to purchase me back unto Himself. We're going to celebrate the communion table here because we want to celebrate what Jesus has done. And when you heard that message, something in your heart knew that it was true and you received it. And that something in your heart, I believe, was the interaction of the Spirit of God confirming in you you that God, that the message concerning Christ was true. This is what Jesus tells Peter. It was not flesh and blood. It was the Spirit of my Father within you. This gives us, I think, a little insight into how the Spirit of God does speak into our lives. It must have seemed to Peter like it was just the the thought that came to his head because Jesus kind of has to tell him, Peter, that's not just your thinking that you're speaking now. That's just not the first thing coming to your mind, which is often the way Peter would respond. No, there's something divine in your response, Peter. God is revealing something to you. Now, in this moment, Peter must have felt like, you know, I finally got it, I got it right. I, I spoke my heart, but it wasn't my heart. It was the Spirit of God revealing something into my heart. And I believe this is still the way the Lord works and speaks to us today. That God speaks truth into our heart. He, he brings truth into our consciousness. And it, it's so natural that it almost seems like just something that came to our own mind, but it's not. It's divine. It's God leading you, God speaking to you, God directing you. Oftentimes when we want to hear from the Lord, we want some kind of mystical, you know, supernatural kind of parting of the heavens, a a voice, you know, thundering voice. We want something that is, you know, just really evidence that God is speaking. But God speaks to His children really just through the still, small voice of His Spirit in your heart. You remember Elijah the prophet when he was discouraged and the Lord encouraged him in the cave? You know, he came to Elijah and he manifested a wind 
but God wasn't in the wind. He manifested an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. The fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And then finally, the still, small voice. And God was in, speaking to him through a still, small voice. We ought not think that God has to do something kind of you know, spectacular, supernatural to speak to our hearts. Now, of course, he can. But God is leading his children by his spirit from within their heart. The Bible says in Romans 8 that those that are the sons of God are those that are led by the spirit of God. Now, does that mean that every idea that comes into my head is the directive from the Lord? No. <laughs> How many of you have made that mistake? Must be God. <laughs> no, that was just you. <laughs> so we've got to learn. We have to grow. We have to discern. What, when's God speaking? When is it just me, you know, kind of conjuring up things that I hope are God or I think maybe might be God? You know, it's not an exact science. We do have to learn. We have to be dependent upon relationship with Him. I want to give just a few practical thoughts for you because I don't know about you, but I want to hear from the Lord. I want God to be speaking in my life. I want, I want His direction. I want His wisdom. I, I want what Peter experienced, that revelation of truth when I need it in that moment. Here's some thoughts for you. One thing that I, I believe, and I speak to myself here for sure, I think one of the things that I need, we need to do so that we might better hear from the Lord is to have a quiet and prayerful mind. Can I be honest? I get so busy sometimes. I don't know how God, if even if God wanted to say something to me, I'm just, my mind is just too busy racing in every other direction. He could never even, there's no room for God. I'm just too busy. I'm too distracted. I'm too, you know, and any downtime, we hate downtime, right? We've got to turn a TV on. There's got to be a text. There's got to be something I can do. I don't want to have to be quiet and still and just, you know, sit. And I think that that's where the Lord often wants to speak and minister to your heart is when you just quiet yourself and be alone with Him and allow your heart to be in an attitude of prayer and let the Lord speak a word of encouragement. Slow down. Time out. Turn it off. Put the cell phone away. Turn the computer off. Get alone with God. Take a walk with Him. Spend some time where God's Spirit can impress truth into your heart. That's one of the things is just, just get quiet and, and be prayerful. Another thing I think that we could do practically is, is focus on having a renewed mind. And this means a mind that is not just chasing after our own selfish desires. The Bible says in Romans you know, that God, God uh, transforms us by the renewing of our mind. And, and to me, that's a mind that is putting God first instead of me first. Because, you know what, when, when I'm first, it's very easy to misinterpret God. Because the only thing I want to hear is what, God, what, is what I want to hear. You know, this is what I want. Surely God must want it. Okay, I'm listening. Yep, seems like God wants it too. <laughs> you know, and how easy we can convince ourselves. That's not a renewed mind. A renewed mind is a selfless mind. A renewed mind is putting Jesus on the throne. A renewed mind says, not my will, but thine be done. God, don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I need to hear. And my mind is prepared and ready to hear from the Lord. A renewed mind, not self-seeking. Third thing, a biblical mind. We need to be biblically literate. Listen, God is not going to contradict what He has already spoken by His Spirit through the inspiration of Scripture. God's not confused. God's not going to write one thing and then tell you something different. 
So one of the ways to discern His voice is to know your Bible. To know the passages of Scripture that can relate and confirm those things that you might be sensing the Lord leading you. When Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he had a... Now, I don't know if he was thinking this in the moment, but, I, but he had a wealth of prophetic scriptures that declared the Messiah to be both Savior and God. And so when, when God speaks to your heart, you immediately decipher it through your knowledge of the Word of God. That's your safety. That's your caution. That's your discernment. If you don't know your Word, then you're... Like the book of Ephesians says, you're liable to be tossed to and fro by every chance wind of doctrine, by everything I think God told me to do or wants me to do or promised me. That's a, that's a dangerous way to live when you're not anchored in the Word of God. Have a biblical mind. And the fourth final thing, and this is not an exhaustive list, but just some that came to my heart for you today, that is have a teachable mind. Be willing to listen to godly counsel. Acknowledge that you have the potential to miss it. Don't just assume, I heard from God, and man, my faith, I'm holding on to this. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what any other outside count. I've heard from God. That's a, that's a, yeah, here's the, here's what I would rather hear. Here's what I would rather say. Here's what I think the Lord is saying to me. Here's what I'm sensing the Lord speaking into my heart. I'm praying on it. I'm waiting on it. I'm searching the Scriptures on it. I'm allowing the Lord to confirm it. You see, that's a teachable spirit. That's a heart that says, listen, I don't don't have this direct line to God that, that every time a thought comes into my mind, I know immediately if it's the Lord or not. And, and those that think they have that are, I think, set themselves up for being deceived and misguided. I think a teachable spirit. Now, there does need to be a faith that rises up and holds on to God's promises. But you understand the context in which it needs to come. A submitted and humble, teachable spirit. God can use, God will use, and God will speak to you. These are practical things in helping you as you walk with the Lord and discern the leading of His Spirit. <clears throat> Let's move on in our text here and want to finish up with this, kind of the second half here. After this question and answering, Jesus now speaks about the church. And he speaks about uh, the church that he is going to build. Look with me in verse 18. He says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now this this passage of Scripture has caused quite a bit of controversy in its interpretation. Um, The Greek tells us this. There's a little insight for us in the Greek. I say to you that you are Peter, Petros, Translated, it's, 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 it's the male version, and it's translated little rock. And upon this Petra, big rock, female gender, I will build my church. So if we just look at kind of the Greek, there are two words or two renderings of the word. I, I say to you, you are Peter, you are little rock. 
And on this big rock, I will build my church. So there seems to be something of a distinguishing. Peter is not the rock on which I will build my church, although he is a rock. He is going to be something of a foundational member of my church. He's going to have an apostolic ministry that is going to be uh, something of a leadership role in the building of the church, but it's on this big rock. What big rock would that be? The profession of his faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm going to build my church on the truth of who I am. The foundation will be Jesus. Peter, you will be part of that building process and that foundation as an apostle. But the church is not built on you. The church is built on what you have just declared, and that is Jesus. Now, that's the way we would view this interpretation. But, you know, there are others that see this. No, Peter is the one that Jesus is going to build the church on. The Catholic Church understands this passage to teach Peter as being the foundation and his authority has been passed on through apostolic succession through the popes over the generations. And his authority holds the same place as Scripture concerning doctrine and practice of faith in the church. I don't know if you've been watching the news of late, but boy, the Pope is just, he's in the U.S., visiting the U.S., and he is in the news cycle every day. Well, this helps us understand why the Catholic Church puts such a prominence on this man. Because they see him as the authority of Peter passed down through generations, and that's, he speaks for Christ because Christ entrusted Peter as the Pope of the church, the the, the, you know, the, the leader of the church, and it's built on him and his authority as an apostle. The Reformation of the 1500s challenged that and said, no, it, it's not Peter, but it's Christ. It's not the, the traditions of the church that should be embraced as final authority. It should be the scriptures alone. That should speak as final authority. The term sola scriptura, the Latin phrase, was coined during that Reformation time by Scripture alone. It is the Christian doctrine that the Bible is the supreme authority in all matters of doctrine and practice. So we see there is some controversy on Jesus' declaration here concerning Peter. Now, we can take, let's not take anything away from Peter. Peter does represent a leader even amongst the twelve. And, and he does seem to have a strong foundational ministry. Uh, and, uh, but the Bible does not teach him as the foundation of the church. Nor is there any biblical idea that his apostolic authority would be passed on from generation to generation. Consider these verses with me. And again, I just quote some verses to you. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11. The Apostle Paul says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul saw Jesus as the foundation upon which the church was built. Even Peter himself. Listen to Peter's testimony in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Speaking to the church, he says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, 
Behold, I, and you're being built up upon what he goes on to say, verse 6, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Peter is saying, look, you guys are stones being built into this temple of God, but you're being built on the cornerstone, and the cornerstone is Christ. Not me, not Peter, but Christ. This seemed to be Peter's understanding of the New Testament church. Ephesians 2 and verse 20 says concerning the church that it has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The apostles clearly did have a foundational ministry in building the church. They were the ones that wrote the New Testament scriptures. That was a unique apostolic gift that God gave to those men to lay the proper foundation, but Jesus himself was the chief cornerstone. So we're not taking away from the apostolic ministry. Apostle Peter did have a unique ministry, but the church itself is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And those that would become part of the church today, they do so by making the same foundational profession of faith that Peter makes this day in Caesarea Philippi. You are the Savior. You are God. That is the foundation that brings and builds the church. I also am blessed by Jesus' statement when he says, I will build my church. You know, for those of us that serve as pastors, that's such a comfort to know that it's not, I'm not having to build the church it's not my church. Every now and then I get confused. I think, well, this is my church. I've got to do something to make it. No, Jesus, like, just time out, Richard. This is not your church. This is my church. I'm building it. You just work there. <laughs> you just happen to serve there. You just be obedient and teach the word, love the people, shepherd them as best you can in a prayerful, you know, humble way, and you let me do the building. It's my, it's my work. And you're, you're better off just letting me uh, stay in charge. And boy, that's true. <laughs> and that's true for all of us. You know, uh, let's let the Lord work. Let's let the Lord build his church. Let the, let, let, let the Lord do what he wants to do in our midst. But there's such a promise here. Not even the gates of Hades shall be able to prevail against it. Like I said, what uh, what a, what a backdrop, knowing that they're in this city where there's a cave called the gates of Hades, the underworld. Jesus is saying, look, even the forces of hell, even the dark forces of the underworld, the demonic forces, they will not be able to prevail against the church. The church of the living God will be able to sustain and remain and have victory, not through all time and through against all forces. He speaks finally here of authority. In verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And again, this would speak, I believe, both to the apostolic ministry. Uh, these apostles, they would establish some of the early church rules, doctrine, and practices. 
And they had a unique calling for that. And it's as if God is giving them the keys for that. I'm giving you the responsibility for that. You'll be led by my spirit. You'll establish the early doctrine. But it also speaks, I think, to the church today. The church today is still the place where God exercises his authority. It's the place uh, where the scripture continues to be taught and his word is honored. It's a place where sinners are saved and set free from sin. It's a place where Christ is honored and worshipped. His authority in a church that is healthy and biblical, his authority should prevail. And it's ministered again through the word, through prayer, and through our fellowship one with another. Jesus is commending Peter, but he's also speaking into the future of the church And he finishes our text today that he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Oh, man, poor Peter, that must have bummed him. I finally got it right. I finally got something divine, and I can't tell anybody. (laughs) Got to keep it to myself. Of course, the timing of this revelation was yet to come. Jesus wanted his disciples to know this, but he was not yet ready to present himself to the nation. That was coming. That was coming when he would come in riding on a donkey from the Mount of Olives. He would present himself to the nation as their Messiah. A very specific day prophesied by Daniel the prophet. Jesus did not want to get ahead of God's plan and God's timing. But today, after the cross, after the resurrection, what's the word today? Mark 16:15 Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Then the 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 story is now out. The 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 truth of Jesus is now to be reclaimed. It's always the right time to declare Jesus. And so we've been given the great commission. As we close here today and prepare to partake of communion, I would just ask you to consider your own heart today, where are you? Uh, do you need to, to kind of slow down a minute, like retreat away and just allow the Lord to ask you those probing questions? Hey, what's going on? What, what are you thinking about me today, meaning Jesus? Who do you say that I am? Where's my place in your life? What are your priorities? How are you aligning your life to conform with what you say you believe. Do we allow the Lord that kind of an examination of, of our heart today? You know, the Bible says when we come to the table of the Lord, let each man examine himself. I, I think it's a good time as we come to communion to celebrate and rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. But I also think it's a good time to have that moment of saying, Lord, where am I with you? Is my heart right? Am I... Am I putting you first? Are you really Savior and Lord? And I think it's a good kind of question that we can allow the Lord to to ask each of us today. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this passage that speaks, I believe, some wonderful insight into your preparing the heart of your disciples And God, I want to give place to that same kind of dialogue in my heart. Lord, in the disciples' life, you knew what was just ahead. You knew 
that things were going to begin advancing now toward the cross. And you knew what that meant for you and for them. And so you're beginning to solidify their faith. You're beginning to to open up their eyes of understanding. And, And Lord, I think of my own life today, and I think of our lives here today as a congregation. You know what's coming. You know what's just ahead in all of our lives. And Lord, I want my heart to always be available for you to speak to me, for you to ready me for those things that you have for me, to to, to slow down and be reminded, Lord, of, of who you are and what you mean to my life, to my family, to my church, which is your church, to our friendships, to our workplace, to the lives that are important to us. Jesus Who are you in my heart and life today? And as we close today and prepare for communion, I ask that your spirit would just ask those loving questions in the heart of everyone here today. And just before we partake of the elements, if you'll just stay with me in a moment of prayer, I do want to give an opportunity for you to respond to the Lord today. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord in a personal relationship and God is speaking to you and you know in your heart it's time to quit talking about Jesus. It's time to really surrender my life to Jesus. And maybe you're here today and you want to receive that forgiveness, that love, that grace that He has for you for the first time. I'd love to pray for you, especially as we partake of communion. Maybe you're here today, you need to rededicate, recommit your life to Him. Maybe as the Holy Spirit is probing those questions in your heart today, you realize, Lord, you're not who I have declared you to be. I I, I say that you're Savior and Lord, but I'm, I'm not living my life that way. I'm not really connected to you as I ought to be. I'm not really following you in the sincerity that I want to. I want to come back and recommit my heart today. And I want to partake of this communion with a sincere heart, surrendered in love and obedience to you. I'd love to pray for you too. So just before we hand out the elements, if you're here today and you want to receive Christ or rededicate your life to Him, would you just raise your hand, let me see you, and I'll pray for you. Bless you in the very front. God bless you. Any others? back. God bless you. for these hearts responding to you today. I pray that you would meet them with your love and your grace and your mercy. I pray within their heart that they would simply come to you sincerely just as Peter did and say, Jesus, you're my Savior. Please forgive me. You're the the Son of the living God. You're the eternal God. I, I invite you into my life. Please cleanse me, change me, and begin to lead me in the way and purpose that you have for me. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.